I direct the ethics team for global affairs MA program, and I teach human rights courses in the School of International Service. Uh, this is our third event in our Human Rights Activism and Awareness Week, uh, where we are trying to offer different perspectives that we, that we normally hear, especially on the university campus, um, about some of the human rights issues associated with U.S. foreign policy. Um, today's event is on whistleblowers and press freedoms, uh, which is one of the re many reasons why we brought Chris in for today. Um, just a couple plugs for tomorrow, Friday. Uh, tomorrow we will be having an event on drones, the moral, uh, morality and legality of targeted drone strikes. Um, we originally had Hadi Benjamin. I, he's going to be at a conference in Iran. Um, but we do have retired Colonel Ann Wright, who is an outspoken uh, critic of the Iraq War, as well as use of drones. Uh, and Chris Woods, formerly of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, drone strikes, including the use of attacks on funeral attendees and uh, double taps, or as Marjorie Cohn yesterday referred to as triple taps. Um, what else? Uh, and then Friday, we have a screening of Voices Across the Divide. Uh, Alice Rothschild, the director, will be with us. Uh, she was raised a Zionist, um, but after speaking with Palestinians and hearing their narrative, she's changed her perspective. Uh, so that will be tomorrow. And then to end the week, we will have, this is the one I Forgetting, we have a human rights open mic night. Uh, in some ways, a poetry slam, and that will be at the Lamont Street Collective, which is in Mount Pleasant. Um, it is BYOB. It will be from seven o'clock to nine o'clock. So if you want to come, hang out, listen to some poetry, or contribute your own, um, you can do so there. Um, a couple other things, just to note, not necessarily directly related to today's event. But one of the reasons why we also wanted to have these events is we didn't want them to be one-off events where you just come in, you hear panelists talk, and then you go about your regular life. Uh, we did want there to be some sort of activism component to it. Uh, and so I did want to just connect you to, or make you aware of, uh, a current campaign at ruthaction.org about stopping the bombs. This is related to the bombing of Iraq and Syria. Uh, so you can go to Ruth's Action and learn more about that. Um, in terms of more direct action, Code Pink has a couple actions, or a couple of, I should say, campaigns, activities coming up. Uh, tonight at the Code Pink House in Northeast Washington, um, there will be a dinner, a potluck, um, to talk more about strategy for engaging with the uh, bombing of Iraq and Syria. Tomorrow there will also be a protest at the White House at noon um, against the bombing of Iraq and Syria, as well as a candlelight vigil tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock White House. Um, if you are interested and it helps to know someone there, I will be unable to go to the 12 o'clock, obviously, because of tomorrow's event. Um, but I and hopefully others will be at the candlelight vigil tomorrow night at 7 at the White House. Uh, the last thing, um, you can have a flyer on your, on your seat. Some, a couple campaigns related to uh, the topic of today, the Free Chelsea Manning campaign, you can see that there, as well as the Government Accountability Project, uh, which does a lot of work on protecting whistleblowers uh, who come forward to share information. Um, and then at the bottom, there's also this U.S. Foreign Policy Cooperative that we're working on creating. Uh, the first meeting will be Thursday, October 2nd. <coughs> I haven't read the little blurb before, so why not today? Um, and this is you know, for those of you who have been looking to engage with human rights issues related specifically to U.S. policy, so if you are foremost 
a global citizen, someone who does not believe the lives of non-Americans are expendable for the real or perceived security of the United States. If you believe the United States should be held to the same legal standards as those other states are subjected to, and if you, again, wanted to get more engaged and more active but didn't know how, uh, this is one way to do so. Um, for those of us, those of us who are, have been working on this idea, uh, we do believe college campuses are great places to um, get young people involved in activism, at least those who are inclined to do so. And so if you're interested in learning more about the co-op and also helping shape it and frame it, um, please join us October 2nd. And um, lastly, I'll just you know, thank Alyssa again and Lauren, who's the EPD program coordinator, and Alyssa, the president of the Society for Ethics, Peace, and World Affairs, for working um, so hard to help make these events happen. And that leads us finally to our guest today, Chris Hedges. Um, Chris spent nearly two decades as a foreign correspondent in Central America, the Middle East, Africa, and the Balkans. He has reported for more than 50 countries and has worked for the Christian Science Monitor, NPR, Dallas Morning News, and New York Times, uh, for which he was a foreign correspondent for 15 years and a Pulitzer Prize winner. He left the Times after being issued a formal reprimand for denouncing the Bush administration's invasion of Iraq. His many books include Death of the Liberal Class, which I'm currently reading, I Don't Believe in Atheists, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, and the best-selling American Fascist, The Christian Right, and the War on America. He is now a Truth Day columnist and Hedges, I said that twice, and a senior fellow at the Nation Institute, and also, feel free to plug, Chris has another book coming out next spring, uh, which he can mention to you as well. Let's give Chris a okay. warm welcome. Uh, so I guess the idea is we talk for about 30 or 40 minutes and then just have questions. Um, over my own lifetime, 30 years as a reporter, uh, and I started covering the war in El Salvador in 1983, um, you've seen a, an assault against not only the press, but basic civil liberties that make a free press possible. When I covered the war in El Salvador, it was during the Reagan administration. And uh, the Reagan administration uh, was giving arms, weapons, uh, and sending advisors to support the Salvadoran government, which when I got there uh, was, was running death squads that were killing between 700 and 1,000 people a month. And so the Reagan administration, uh, because of pressure from Congress, uh, in particular uh, the Democratic Party, was forced to certify every six months that El Salvador's human rights record had improved. Uh, at one point, I think they won that vote by just one or two votes. Uh, if the Congress had voted that uh, the crimes being committed by the government uh, were not being addressed, then arms would have been cut off, in which case the FMLN rebels would have won the war. Part of the campaign of the Reagan administration at the time was to discredit the press. And they were very effective at it. I was a young freelance reporter. I was working for National Public Radio and the Christian Science Monitor. And uh, there wasn't just only the, the kind of verbal assaults that were carried out against reporters who were covering the war, that we were fifth columnists for the rebels, and we were all closet Sandinistas, the Sandinista government in Nicaragua had just come to power uh, a couple years before, 1979. Um, but they, uh, 
internally carried out campaigns uh, to pressure our editors not to run our stories. And the higher up you were within the food chain, if, for instance, if you worked for the New York Times, that pressure became quite intense. Uh, in terms of pressure against the New York Times, they managed to drive out Ray Bonner after he exposed a massacre called El Masote, in which hundreds of Salvadoran peasants were murdered by the Salvadoran army. Um, they actually got him replaced with another reporter named Shirley Chisholm, who was, uh, had worked for the Miami Herald, had been a fervent supporter of uh, not only the government, but the Contras, who were or the Reagan's administration had backed in Nicaragua. In my own case, just, I mean, all of, the, all of us who were out there in the field attempting to report what was happening uh, were targeted. And we were targeted uh, not only as journalists, but we were smeared uh, as being propagandists, fifth columnists for these forces. So for instance, in my own case, I wrote a story once about how the um, Salvadoran government was paying off, no, a, that, that AID contractors were paying off the Salvadoran rebels not to burn their construction equipment on the roads. Um, and uh, part of the deal was that in AID, US built schools, the rebels in rebel zones would actually be allowed to come in and spend an hour or two sp spreading revolutionary propaganda. Um, and this was the story, a kind of story that they did not want out. Um, and so, uh, the State Department contacted my foreign editor. Uh, they accused me of making up the story. Uh, my, you know, they presented kind of false evidence that it wasn't true. And I, as a young freelance reporter, was in serious trouble. I mean, I think all of us who have uh, taken counter narratives um, have felt this kind of pressure, and I have throughout my career. Uh, and so I was uh, having a difficult time. Uh, convincing the paper that the report that I had filed was in fact correct. And I was only saved when a diplomat named Tex Harris, I'd never met him, called. He was working in AID. I went years later, met him, and thanked him. Uh, and he called my editor. And he said, I work in AID. My name's Tex Harris. Uh, and I want to tell you that everything your reporter wrote is true, and they are just trying to destroy him. Um, Tex Harris, it turns out, had been a diplomat, he'd been the DCM, which is the second in charge at the embassy in Argentina during the Dirty War, when the Argentines disappeared 30,000 of their own citizens. And uh, of the, the military junta uh, had gone after uh, university students, journalists, human rights campaigners, and labor union leaders. And Tex had actually taken people who he knew were targeted, put them in the trunk of his car, which had diplomatic plates, and driven them to safety in Uruguay. Uh, he was found out for this and um, demoted. And he was demoted to AID, which is how he ended up in AID. Um, I think that, you know, I don't know if any of you are in government, but it's certainly been my experience that uh, those with a conscience inevitably are going to go up if they hold fast and have any kind of moral integrity there will be a moment in which there is a clash. And you will have to make a choice, whether you serve your own career or whether you serve what is right. Tex Harris, is, who was one of our most courageous and brilliant diplomats, um, his career never recovered. Um, he was pushed to the margins on purpose. Um, and 
and, and unfortunately for me as a young reporter, without his intervention, um, it would have been very difficult for me to continue covering the war. Um, the Reagan administration uh, was a kind of window for me into uh, when you are writing a narrative the government doesn't want, the, the resources that they will employ to try and silence your voice. Um, and this, I spent seven years after I left Central America in the Middle East, much of that time in Gaza, and again ran into a uh, huge pushback from uh, not only the Israeli government, but of course the Israeli lobby itself. Um, and you know the, the Israeli lobby in the United States has deep resources and can and work hard to defame the work that a reporter is doing. It crosses administrations. When I was in Bosnia uh, covering, I covered the war out of Sarajevo and then went on to cover the peace, the Dayton peace plan. And this was billed by the Clinton administration as a peace plan which had knit back together a multi-ethnic Bosnia. This com was completely untrue, of course. What it had done is uh, partition Bosnia into ethnic enclaves. And not only that, but the worst war criminals in Bosnia were in charge of those enclaves. Uh, but to write that kind of a narrative, um, especially with Clinton running for re-election, uh, made me a target, in particular Sandy Berger, who was the head of the NSC. Um, uh, I am a dual national. I'm Swiss-American. And uh, the, at the time, the uh, Clinton administration uh, had gotten the OSCE as its uh, kind of overseen body to certify whether or not free elections could be held in Bosnia. Well, of course, it was farcical, the idea that you got free elections when uh, war lo lords who had committed tremendous acts, criminal acts of ethnic cleansing were running places like Banja Luka and Priador and everywhere else. And so all these European human rights monitors under the OSCE auspices were sent out to report from these towns as to whether or not free elections could be held. And of course, when all the reports came in, um, they had reported correctly um, that these towns were still in the grip of the warlords who had uh, perpetrated the war in the first place and carried out egregious acts of, of genocide and ethnic cleansing. And the uh, Clinton administration moved very quickly to make sure those reports never became public. Um, and reduced the compilation of those reports to only four people within the OSCE had them. Uh, and they desperately didn't want them to get out to the press. The head of the OSCE, who was not in Sarajevo, but the president that year of the OSCE was the foreign minister of Switzerland, a guy named Koti. And, um, and he was this, uh, only about 2% of Switzerland, Swiss population is Italian, but he was of Italian origin down near Lugano. And uh, uh, he was appalled at, you know, he read the reports, and he was just appalled that there was going to be pushed through this kind of farce of free elections only to buttress, in essence, the Clinton campaign. And so Cauti leaked me the reports. Um, and I was started publishing them. I mean, I started leading the paper, uh, the New York Times, with these internal reports. And the Clinton administration, in particular Sandy Berger, went berserk. Uh, and they wanted to find out how I was getting those reports. They actually carried out a witch hunt. They thought that some of the human rights uh, reporters within the OSC were leaking them to me. 
Um, and uh, people were removed, people were thrown out of Sarajevo. Even though I was the Balkan Bureau Chief for the New York Times, I was officially banned from entering the OSC building in Sarajevo. Um, and what they didn't know is that the head of the OSCE was in fact giving me the reports. Uh, eventually they put heavy pressure on Koti. These were the times when uh, it was the issue of uh, reparations, Holocaust reparations with Swiss banks. And I went, I went to Bern to see Koti. And uh, I, I, went, I remember going to his office and he was just ashen. And the only thing he said to me was, you come from a very cruel country. And he got up very shortly afterwards and said, there is you know, ample democratic space within Bosnia to have free elections. And I think what they did is, I don't, I'm guessing, but they, I think the lever they used were the Holocaust reparations uh, to get him to um, essentially fall in line. Um, all of that is by saying that, you know, in, as a foreign correspondent who has covered the outer reaches of empire for 20 years, writing the narrative of what's real, what's happening in Gaza, uh, what's happening in southeastern Turkey, what's happening in um, the marshes of southern Iraq, wherever it is, uh, almost inevitably runs into conflict with the official narrative that is peddled for political reasons to a domestic public. And, um, and I have had periodically throughout my career, uh, you know, very vicious attacks. Dick Holbrook, um, uh, you know, was, a, was, a, was an amazing operator. And, uh, you know, would have lunch with my publisher and would trash my reporting. Because, of course, as the architect of the Dayton Peace Plan, he uh, had a vested interest in presenting this as, you know, the, a multi-ethnic solution. Um, when, of course, in fact, it wasn't. Um, I remember Holbrook found out that uh, I was reviewing his book for the New York Times to end a war and uh, went berserk. He, actually, you know, it's completely secret. You're not even supposed to know who the reviewer is, but that's that was classic Dick Holbrook that he found it out. And he went to the publisher and the editors saying that I had uh, you know, a, um, that I was not, that, that, that I was out to get him, that I was not an impartial critic. I never, as a reporter, uh, gravitated towards centers of power. I never wanted to ride in somebody's car. When I covered the first Gulf War, I didn't want to go to the Schwarzkopf conferences. I hung out with Lance Corporals, the Marine Corps. Um, and it, it wasn't that I actually had any animus, particularly towards Holbrook. It's just that I never liked that uh, kind of, uh, press reporting where you are kind of enveloped into the inner circle of power. Um, and so I always held Holbrook at arm's length. And because I was reporting for the New York Times and wasn't uh, being easily domesticated by Holbrook, he interpreted this as hostility. Um, and so the Times didn't actually take the book away from me, but they made me file my review two weeks early so they could read it through. And if they felt that it was too uh, vicious an attack, they'd give it to another reviewer. Um, and I actually gave it a fairly, I, I think I gave it a very good review. I mean, I, I uh, Holbrook, uh, the, the, you know, the brilliance of Dick Holbrook is that he was kind of built for the Balkans. Um, uh, you know, he had exactly the same kind of gangster mentality as Slobodan Milosevic and Franjo Tuzman and everyone else. 
Um, and I was in, at that point, covering the war in Kosovo. Um, and uh, Holbrook was coming down. They were trying to negotiate um, you know, some kind of an end to the, what had begun, the ethnic cleansing that the Serbs had begun in Kosovo. And so all the TV, Serbian TV cameras were there uh, waiting for Holbrook to arrive. And Holbrook's motorcade arrived. And he got out and he saw me. And he came over to me. Now, this was only because of his book review. And so on national Serb TV, um, Holbrook comes up to me and he goes like this three times, thanking me for the review. Well, this is broadcast throughout Serbia. Um, and of course, uh, I was instantly identified as the head of the CIA mission uh, in Kosovo. Um, I, I had traveled with the first group of armed rebels in Kosovo. and it. It made, I mean, I was, it made my life very uncomfortable. Uh, and I finally, I remember it was in Mons a few weeks later with we General Wesley Clark, who at the time was the Supreme Commander of NATO. And he said, well, we, we now have army intelligence that the, when you go back to Kosovo, the Serbs are going to kill you. And so I want you to take this locator chip so we can find your body, um, which I didn't take because I was constantly being searched at roadblocks, and I didn't want anything that identified me. I mean, they were ripping the, my seats out of my armored car looking for stuff. And uh, I just didn't want to be patted down and have a locator chip on me. Um, so that's been just a kind of constant. I think for all good foreign reporters, that's a constant. You're constantly battling um, that official Washington narrative and often your own newsroom. That Washington newsroom itself, those people who make their living doing lunch with the powerful. It's not a form of journalism that it ever interested. So that's the background in terms of um, an attempt to tell an honest narrative uh, that contradicts or challenges state power. And um, after the war in Kosovo, I covered out of Paris al-Qaeda. And then I kind of ran into problems uh, with the Times over the Iraq war. Um, and was given a written reprimand to stop speaking out against the war. Um, and that, under union rules, you give the employee the reprimand. And then next, if they don't follow the reprimand, you have uh, grounds under union rules, under guild rules, to fire them. I left the paper before they would fire me, but it was clear they were going to fire me. Um, and what I saw, let's say, starting after 9-11, was in the name of national security a destruction of the legal mechanisms that had once been in place to protect reporters like myself. So it begins, I mean, the most egregious begins with the FISA Amendment Act, which explodes into wholesale surveillance. When you have wholesale surveillance, when you know, every reporter, every citizen has all of their electronic communications monitored by the government. It's the end of investigative journalism, uh, at least in terms of investigating power. Um, it's why Snowden fled the country. Uh, Snowden uh, knew, f you know, full well that um, captivating all of Greenwald's electronic communication would mean that, you know, they they would very quickly identify who it is, who had provided the information. Um, but what it means is that if there is 
somebody within government like Tex Harris who has a conscience, who seeks to reach out and make government crimes or government malfeasance known to the public, um, they can never do so with any anonymity or any protection. And we have the case of Jim Risen, who's been called before a grand jury, and the grand jury is trying to force him to expose his sources, who it is that uh, told him about the Bush uh, uh, warrantless wiretaps, uh, which he hasn't done, um, for which he may go to jail. Uh, we have that coupled with the use of the Espionage Act, and this is really Obama, and I think it, we have to make clear that Obama's assault on civil liberties has in fact been far more egregious than the assault by George W. Bush. Uh, and I speak as a re former reporter. Uh, the use of the Espionage Act. The Espionage Act passed in 1917 by Woodrow Wilson, which is designed, uh, it's our, the equivalent of our Foreign Secrets Act. It's designed to uh, prosecute those who give state information to those who are considered the enemy. Uh, but it has been misused by the Obama administration seven times now to go after people who have tried to expose government crimes, uh, usually through the press, to the public. Um, and it has, uh, th that combination of wholesale surveillance, coupled with the misuse of the Espionage Act to target people, and Chelsea Manning was charged under the Espionage Act, Snowden's been charged under the Espionage Act. I assume there's probably a sealed grand jury indictment against Assange. Um, uh, I don't think they can charge him with the Espionage Act because he's not American. But the, the use of the Espionage Act has been a weapon uh, to reinforce the, the sort of mechanism by which we just don't have the ability to shine a light on the inner workings of power and understand what power is doing. Um, and I've had personal experiences with that um, in terms of whistleblowers reaching out, um, including one who had been on a Navy ship and uh, had witnessed that ship uh, entering Iranian territorial waters and firing on Iranian vessels in an attempt to provocate an incident. And uh, you know they're not dumb enough to go through any electronic communications to reach me. They reach you through circuitous routes, in this case through a relative. Um, he was living in the Midwest. He'd been out of the Navy. Um, obviously, we couldn't speak about it on the phone. We couldn't, and I did not in any way, when I, I got his phone number from his relative, called him, and I said, okay, here are the flights, and, uh, and everything was fine. And then when I called back and said, okay, I'm going to fly in on this day, and this, he said, I don't know who you are. I don't want to talk to you, and hung up. Obviously, what had happened, even though we had never discussed what the issue was, the metadata makes it clear, here's a former... Uh, naval officer and, my, and myself, and between the time that I had spoken to him initially and the time I had called him back to give him my flight, my flight information, somebody paid him a visit and said, you're not talking to anybody. And that's extremely dangerous because, in essence, it allows power carte blanche to do anything they want. The uh, lack of reaction about wholesale surveillance, NSA surveillance is kind of mystifying to me. Um, and I think you know any sort of basic study of totalitarianism, and I covered the Stasi state in East Germany, uh, shows that 
totalitarian states collect information on everyone so that at a moment when they seek to criminalize a person or a set of people, they have quote unquote evidence. Um, or if they want people to be silenced, they have the capacity to blackmail. Um, you know, and there was even an allusion to that by Pelosi. Um, this whole thing about the CIA not cooperating with the set of investigation and spy, you know, all that stuff. And, she, and there was an offhand comment she said about something, how they play hardball. Because, of course, we know that they not only keep files on all of us, but they keep files on all these elected officials the way Jagger Hoover did. But here, of course, it's much more pervasive and much more intrusive. Um, and that's how intelligence agencies work. When they want to blackmail you, you know, for whatever reason, and you know, none of us are, with maybe the exception of Ralph Nader, uh, most of us have interior lives that are filled with the usual contradictions of all human beings, they have the material to do it. Um, two years ago, Barack Obama signed into law Section 1021 of the National Defense Authorization Act. And this is part of this escalating assault against civil liberties. Of course, the capacity to assassinate now American citizens. I mean, the idea that, that, you know, that the executive branch can condemn an American to death uh, without due process, without evidence even. We don't know what a Lockheed did. We don't know what he didn't do. We, and of course, a 16-year-old son is killed two weeks later. So. Um, Obama signs into law Section 1021. It has bipartisan support. Levin and McCain support the bill. Section 1021 of the NDAA authorizes the military, overturning over 150 years of domestic law, to seize American citizens who substantially support, and that's not a legal term. That's not material support. That's a nebulous term. Substantially support al-Qaeda, the Taliban, or something called associated forces. Again. Another vague term, what are associated forces? To strip them of due process and to hold them indefinitely uh, in our black sites until, in the language of Section 1021, the end of hostilities, which in an age of permanent war um, is probably a lifetime. Um, and so uh, that January, I sued the president uh, in the Southern District Court of New York. and. Uh, I had Greenwald, and who's himself a lawyer, and others, you know, didn't think we had any chance. We happened to get a, an amazing judge, Judge Catherine B. Forrest, uh, and um, and she ruled in our favor. Uh, she ruled that the stripping of due process of an American citizen was unconstitutional. It's kind of a black and white constitutional issue, but the courts since 9/11 have just run as fast as they uh, could from any uh, cases that are concerned civil liberties. Um, and it was fascinating, the response. I mean, her 112-page opinion is worth reading. I mean, not only is it a clear writing, and I think she wrote it to be read for a general public, but she talked about the danger of allowing the military to carry out this process. And she actually brings up the internment of 110,000 Japanese in World War II, saying that this opens the way for the government to uh, criminalize an entire group of people, seize them, and strip them completely of any uh, possibility for due process. Um, so the day she issued her ruling, not only did the federal attorneys appear in her chambers, but they appeared accompanied now by national security attorneys. And 
they said to her, you have to put the law, you have to lift the temporary injunction, you have to put the law back into effect in the name of national security. And to For Judge Forrest's credit, she refused. That was on a Friday afternoon. 9 a.m., the same lawyers were in the appellate court in New York, the Second Circuit, the court right below the Supreme Court, above the Southern District Court. And they appealed to the panel of judges to, again, put the law back into effect until their appeal was heard. Now, the lawyers and I, Carl Mayer and Bruce Afron, uh, and I, I was eventually, the case was called Hedges versus Obama. And it was joined in the case by Daniel Ellsberg, Noam Chomsky, and others. Um, we expected them to appeal, but we were surprised that they acted so aggressively. And I think the assumption was the reason they acted so aggressively is because they're already using the law. That there are most likely uh, dual nationals, Pakistani American nationals, for instance, being held in black sites, Bagram and other places. Because if they managed to get out um, and, it, and they had a US passport uh, and they were not given access to a lawyer um, uh, at, and that injunction was still standing, then the government could be held in contempt of court. And so the um, appellate court put the law back into effect. And now this puts the courts in a difficult position because Stripping an American citizen of due process, using the military to carry out domestic policing, acts in essence of extraordinary rendition on American soil, is patently unconstitutional. When Judge Forrest issued a ruling, the New York Times wrote an editorial uh, praising her decision uh, as def you know, defending one of our most cherished and important constitutional rights. Uh, and it was interesting that the, the only really good coverage of the trial uh, outside of a few like uh, you know, court news and was the New York Times. MSNBC was completely blank, completely silent, because of course they work as the propaganda spin machine in the way that Fox works as a kind of Republican spin machine. And because it had bipartisan support and it was something that reflected negatively about Obama, on Obama, um, it, it, never, it never appeared on the airwaves, ever. Um, and the Times, to their credit, recognized that this was an important story, sent a reporter to cover it, and when the Judge Forrest decision was made, wrote a very good editorial praising her, her decision. Um, so the Second Circuit's in a dilemma because Judge Forrest has laid out clearly, and I think, you know, without, uh, you know, in a kind of incontrovertible way that that um, this is an assault on our constitutional right to due process. And so we have the hearing. It's, a, it's not, you don't actually testify in the appellate. You have a panel of judges. Um, so I had to do my, uh, I was called up for two and a half hours in the initial court proceedings, but not, although I was in the courtroom for the next one. And they have, they have the hearing. They listen to the government lawyers. And then for months, they don't rule. And it turns out that they were waiting for a Supreme Court decision. Uh, I was, there, was a, there was a case called um, Amnesty International versus, versus Clapper. And that was a case that challenged the wholesale wiretapping and surveillance of American citizens. Now, when we brought, I was a plaintiff in that case. When we brought that case, it was a kind of supposition. The Snowden leaks had not come out. 
And so uh, in that case, the government lawyers actually got up and said in the court that plaintiffs such as myself did not have a reasonable fear, a credible fear, um, because any uh, charge that we were being uh, monitored by the government was a supposition. And if we were, the government would tell us. So the Supreme Court threw it out. And the Second Circuit waited until that Supreme Court decision was made to then say Hedges has no um, uh, ability to no standing, no ability to bring the case in Amnesty International versus Clapper. Therefore, he has no standing, no ability to bring the case in Hedges versus Obama. So they never ruled on the constitutional issue. They ruled on my standing, that I didn't have a right to bring the case, and they threw it out. We, we filed a cert petition to the Supreme Court to ask them to hear it, and they did not. They again essentially confirmed that I didn't have the standing to bring the case. Um, Basically, they said that you could not prove that you've been affected by this, right? And therefore, you didn't have standing to, to challenge Well, you, it's not. You can't, yeah, it's a little more, it's not so much prove that you can't be affected by it. It's that um, it, it's, it's that you, um, yeah, not only that, that you don't, you, that, that you can't prove that you're affected by it, but that that law, you know, in effect, doesn't impede your work. I mean, one of the things they did in the, in the, I mean, the government, the, they lost the first case. So in the second case, when they got in the courtroom, the whole thing was different. And so uh, because Judge Forrest had asked repeatedly the government lawyers, can the government give me a solid assurance that Chris Hedges will never be affected by this law? And the government couldn't do it. And so what they did in the second case was say, this will not affect independent journalists. They qualified journalists. And so it's their definition of what is independent and what is not. And if, in their judgment, you are not an independent journalist, then, of course, it does affect you. I mean, they kind of subtly played with the language that way. Um, this kind of gradual assault on civil liberties, <clears throat> which is now, in essence, the stripping of our constitutional rights by judicial fiat is almost complete. Um, we live in a period of relative instability. And as long as that stability, relative instability, remains in place, the kind of very draconian legal and institutional tools by which the government now has the capacity to shut down any form of dissent will be used on those who are on the fringes. They'll be used, for instance, on that sailor who tried to contact me which will be completely off the radar screen and people won't see. But should there be any kind of mass dissent, and I was with about 4,000 people on Monday where we shut down Wall Street all day, uh, if that, those kinds of activities begin to percolate, uh, with a flip of a switch, um, this country essentially can be thrown into martial law. And one of the things that we have seen with the Occupy movement is because these people all communicated digitally, 
they know who the engines of the movement are. And I, I, I speak in New York City, they have targeted every single one of those activists. And the way they target them is they uh, charge them falsely with felonies. And then they say, oh, you don't want to go to jail? Well, then you plea out on a felony charge and you get five years probation. But you better not do anything wrong in those five years or you're going to serve seven years in jail. This is what Cicely McMillan challenged. And of course, that the state came down on her like a ton of bricks. Not only did she get a felony charge, they threw her in Rikers for three months. So I'll give you an example. There was a very prominent activist in the Occupy movement who was in Zuccotti Park, and he was holding a pair of scissors. And he suddenly is charged by the NYPD with assault with a deadly weapon against a New York City police officer. Now, the NYPD filmed that park 24 hours a day. They had like a kind of crane where they filmed it. But of course, they didn't have film of that because it didn't happen. And they bring him up to trial. And the prosecuting and a defense says that they would like to in, uh, begin a plea discussion with the government. And the government says he can't plea out because he's on the homeland terrorism list. And what they do eventually is after months, they worked out this deal. He's charged with a felony for five years. He's essentially neutralized as an activist. That has happened throughout the country. And the way it happens is because they know digitally who was doing what, who was where. I mean, in the Macmillan trial, which I sat in, the, the government had all her tweets, every tweet she'd ever made, every email she'd ever sent. And this is a staple of totalitarian regimes. I urge you all to read Sheldon Wolin's Democracy Incorporated, where he talks about our political system as having devolved into something called inverted totalitarianism by which he means it's not classical totalitarianism. It doesn't find its expression through a demagogue or a charismatic leader, but through the anonymity of the corporate state. That in a classical totalitarian regime, you have reactionary or revolutionary forces that overthrow a structure and replace it. But in inverted totalitarianism, you have corporate forces that purport to pay fealty to electoral politics, the Constitution, the iconography and language of American patriotism, and yet internally have seized all the levers of power to render the citizen impotent. So they, uh, you know, the money replaces the vote. Uh, lobbyists write the legislation. Um, uh, the press is consolidated in the hands, especially the electronic press, of about a half dozen corporations, Clear Channel, Disney, Viacom, General Electric. Uh, and, uh, and all forms of constraint, regulation, control of corporate power are lifted. You see it on Wall Street, but you see it with ExxonMobil. You see it with you know, every other corporation. Uh, and in that sense, unfettered, unregulated capitalism, as Karl Marx understood, is a revolutionary force. It, it has no internal, there's no internal mechanism to limit itself. It commodifies everything. Human beings become commodities. The natural world becomes a commodity that it then exploits until exhaustion or collapse. And that's why the environmental crisis is intimately twinned with the economic crisis. And there is no mechanism, within, you can all go read The Death of the Liberal Class, 
that with a dead liberal class, a liberal elite, and you know, a sort of killed off with Clinton, who spoke in that traditional feel your pain language of liberalism, uh, but takes corporate money and does corporate bidding. So it's under Clinton we get NAFTA, the greatest betrayal of the working class since the Taft-Hartley Act in 1954, which makes it very difficult to organize. It's under Clinton that we get the 1994 omnibus bill, which explodes the prison system, the business of mass incarceration. It's under Clinton that we get the destruction of welfare. And we shouldn't forget that uh, before Clinton destroyed welfare, 70% of welfare recipients were children. It's under Clinton that we get the deregulation of the FCC, which consolidates media control into a handful of corporations like Rupert Murdoch's News Corp. Uh, it's under Clinton that we get the destruction of the 1933 Glass-Steagall bill, which saved, put up a firewall between investment and commercial banks and didn't allow our banking system to be hijacked by speculators. All of that was done under Clinton. And this kind of faux liberalism is, characterizes the Obama administration uh, completely. I mean, whatever Obama's rhetoric about climate change, um, he has uh, carried out an assault on the ecosystem, um, which I think even Sarah Palin uh, didn't envision. Uh, not only in terms of offshore drilling, opening public lands, we now have the tar sands are flowing down to the Gulf of Mexico because he, he approved the southern leg of the XL pipeline and then uh, what they've done is essentially use old piping, which is not built for tar sands, to, uh, uh, to channel uh, the bitumen down from the Alberta uh, oil fields into the southern, I mean, it's already flowing. It's just flowing through old pipeline that wasn't actually, can be, is not actually, because it's very high pressure, this stuff, those pipelines are not actually built in such a way to sustain that pressure, but um, rather than fight the battle of building the northern leg, they're, they're using existing pipelines. Uh, it's Obama, and we know this from WikiLeaks and from Snowden, that has used the intelligence agencies to go in and make sure there's no, on every climate change conference has spied on uh, uh, negotiators to make sure there's no cap on admissions and that they pass non-binding agreements that nobody has to actually abide by. So the rhetoric doesn't match the reality. There's a complete disconnect between self-professed liberals like Clinton, like Obama. Uh, and you know, you have to hand it to Clinton, who I think is one of the most amoral scumbags on the planet, uh, but kind of brilliant. Because what he did is he, in essence, for corporate money, turned the, the Democratic Party into the Republican Party. And he forced the Republican Party to shift so far to the right that they became insane. Um, they appealed to two different constituencies. But on all of the structural issues, whether it's the expansion of imperial wars, which is kind of you know, a timely topic at the moment, or now we've now become Hezbollah's air force. I mean, who would have thought that when we went into Iraq? Hezbollah is fighting with Bashar Assad. Um, you know, or Wall Street, or the environment, or anything else. And that, I think, makes Wolin's critique of power extremely prescient. Uh, and um, I mean, Wolin, I don't know if he's read anymore. Politics and Vision, his 1960 book, is a masterpiece. Um, he taught at Berkeley for many years. He taught at Princeton. Democracy Incorporated is just a really good kind of look at the American political system and what's happened to it. Uh, but by, in the 1980s, when all this was happening, Wolin wasn't buying it. 
um, and he understood what was being dismantled. And he critiqued it, and he was pushed completely to the margins. Um, he's now 93 years old. He lives in a retirement community in Salem, Oregon. And I went out with a film crew uh, funded by the Lannan Foundation to do a two and a half hour interview with him. He hadn't been, he hasn't been interviewed in about 10 years. Thank God he's like, you know, I mean, I could hardly keep up with the guy. It was quite humbling. Um, it's, it's quite a powerful interview. And, and those kinds of voices, and it's, you know, one of the reasons why Chomsky has been shut out. I mean, you go to France, most, almost all French intellectuals know who Noam Chomsky is. But we in America, I mean, he's, he's been completely blacklisted in the way that Nader's been blacklisted. I mean, nobody understands corporate power and how it works in this country better than Ralph Nader. Nobody's been fighting it longer. Um, and that is the kind of critique that corporate power makes sure is not heard. They use nefarious ways to silence these people. Um, character assassination, in this case, Nader's ego. Um, uh, you know, Nader destroyed, gave us Bush, whatever the narrative is. Um, same way they took down my friend Jeremiah Wright. Um, they're very good at it. They lynch you. I mean, I've been a victim of it. They, they lynch you, and they do it every hour on the airwaves over you know, hour after hour. And since we're a society that largely communicates in images and cliches, there's almost no way to fight back against that. Um, so that's where we are. And um, in essence, we have no ability anymore to restrain these corporate forces that are rapidly turning the country into a form of neo-feudalism. Half of this country now lives in poverty or a category called near poverty. It replicates itself globally. Um, you know, if we reduce the working class to serfdom, workers are told here they have to be competitive, but competitive with what? Slave labor in China or sweatshop workers in Bangladesh were making 22 cents an hour. That's the world that is devolving. Um, and, and the mechanism by which it is held in place is the most sophisticated system of mass surveillance ever created in human history. There's a very interesting little book called Cyberpunks by Julian Assange, who I just I, I debated at the Oxford Union on Snowden, all in black tie. Um, and there's certainly nothing like British snobbery. Um, and I went to Harvard, so that's saying a lot. Um, the uh, Assange, because he has that uh, technical brilliance in terms of understanding electronic forms of communication, when he was attacked by the, the security and surveillance state, when they tried to shut down WikiLeaks, he understood what was happening to him. And he wrote this little book, um, which is essentially explains. But this is all before Snowden. But of course, you know, he has the knowledge to do it. He explains what the mechanisms they have now set up to monitor and control us. And he's very bleak. He's very pessimistic. Um, he talks about it as the most effective form of control and the most frightening dystopia. Um, that humankind has ever faced. Uh, and, and I think that, unfortunately, that is the world we're headed towards. Uh, and, and they're all ready to go. I mean, they know the disruptions of climate change. They know when you have a class of speculators that eventually things are going to go down again. I mean, even Gretchen Morganson now in the New York Times is writing that there'll be another you know, bursting bubble in the global.
Now we should all like have a drink. Okay. <laughs> Right. And the people who are speaking out against the things that are going wrong, you know, like you are sort of being marginalized and voices are being shut down, and even the nonprofit corporations that are supposed to be like helping people um, stand up against the government, so many of them are failing all the time. Right. So we're holding to the interest. How do we fix any of these problems? Well, I think the, the only mechanism we have left is mass civil disobedience. Because it doesn't matter what we want. I mean, they, they know, they, they um, you see it in the 2008 election. I mean, Obama was actually given a mandate for substantial change. And I actually dislike Obama more than Bush. Because I think Bush was just clueless. I think he was just kind of a moron. Um, whereas Obama's intelligent. And Obama, you know, I think, must be extremely cynical. He knows where centers of power lie, and he plays to those centers of power. Um, and, they, and they know, you know, this is the whole system of kind of mass communication, mass propaganda. They know what we want, and they feed it back to us. I mean, Hillary Clinton is about to run a campaign where she's going to sound like a populist, while every time she steps behind the curtain, her pockets are stuffed full of money by Goldman Sachs. And, and in essence, it doesn't matter what we want. I mean, nobody wants to be in the war. I mean, look at the poll numbers. Nobody wants to be in the war in Afghanistan. Nobody wants Wall Street to run amok. I'm talking about you know, everything from the Tea Party all the way across the spectrum. But it doesn't matter. We don't have any capacity anymore to influence the system in any meaningful way, unless we're the Koch brothers. But you know, Obama got more Wall Street money in 2008 than McCain did. And after he won the election, the Obama campaign, advertising age, awarded the Obama campaign marketer of the year. He beat Nike, Apple, Zappos, because the professionals knew just what he'd done. I, was, I wrote Nader's speeches for him in 2008, his major policy speeches. But I was kind of tipped off to Obama by Kucinich, who uh, Dennis gave me a copy of Obama's two-year voting record in the Senate. And what he did, you know, I'm imitating Kucinich, he said, you know, when he was a kid, he said, when I was a kid, I would go to the baseball game in Cleveland, and the ushers would go up and down going, get your scorecard, get your scorecard, you know, which had all the batting stats. He said, that's all that counts. Forget the propaganda. And if you read that vote, that two-year voting record of Obama in the Senate was one corporate giveaway after another, including supporting the death penalty. I mean, his actual, thank you, his actual voting record, and I, I detest the Clintons, was worse than Hillary Clinton. And that's all that counts. It's what they do, it's not what they say. They've learned how, how to tell us what we want to hear. They're very good at it. And they're very good at manipulating how we feel, because we vote for personalities, not for ideas. I mean, it's this ridiculous thing of, you know, would you want to have a beer with George Bush? Um, I mean, I don't know who would want to have a beer with George Bush, but it kind of worked as a campaign. That's interesting, because I feel like even 
Mm -hmm. No, you're right. Right. That's right. And they could care less. Well, you know, that's why Flood Wall Street was so important, because we didn't have a permit. We met in Battery Park, and we did not know when we stepped onto that street what was going to happen. And if it was Michael Bloomberg, we wouldn't have gotten half a block. You know, I, and I speak as somebody who was involved in Occupy, we would have all been in jail. But de Blasio clearly, when we stepped into the street, when they're about to arrest you, you always see the uh, rings of white zip ties uh, or that they put on rolls, the cops, on the backs of their belts. And when we got in the streets, I saw that they weren't there. And that, so I knew we weren't going to be arrested at least immediately. But we didn't know. We had no permit. And we shut down those streets. And when we got to Wall Street, the cops tried to keep half the street open for traffic. And the chant began, whose street, our streets, whose street. And they pushed through, and everybody sat down. We blocked the street all day long. Uh, they also, by the way, ripped down all the barricades. That would have never happened under Bloomberg. Now, if I think that de Blasio, especially in the wake of the climate march, just didn't want pictures of 4,000 people being arrested. Um, but if those kinds of activities become sustained, I have no doubt that the security and surveillance state will go back to the tactics that it went before. Um, you, you've talked about uh, building a mass movement. By the way, I have all your books. And um, listen to everything you say. Um, well, then you've all heard all this. Oh, well, OK. There's always a little something new, right? Thank you very much. The problem, and I'm an activist and a civil disobedience, and you know, I just think how slick this whole thing was of bringing Obama. I mean, you know, what a perfect, I mean, it's like they couldn't have gotten a better caricature. Right. You know, educated, articulate, uh, young, uh, nice-looking, uh, light-skinned African-American, um, uh, you know, who swept everybody, uh, uh, most people, lots of people off their feet. Um, and, um, I mean, I was with, uh, and I'm from Indianapolis, Indiana, by the way, which is very conservative, but we have a, a pocket of activists there. And we come here, and I'm, I'm here, and, I was uh, arrested uh, along with my friend, five of us, in front of the, uh, the guardhouse yesterday. But um, those who used to come out when George Bush was president stay in their houses now. They will not. And I have some very good friends who've, who've been activists for years, and they will not uh, uh, do civil disobedience. The most they'll do is stand out on the street and hold a sign. Because, as one of my friends said, I don't want to be called a, uh, a racist. I said, you know, give it up. Uh, uh, criminals are criminals. Well, criminals are. Um, but, but, and, and, and then those who, who stick with the Democrats. Uh, uh, I, I, I mean, this has really been uh, difficult. Well, the, that... That was done by design. I mean, they exactly. knew what they were doing. Obama, you have to remember, is a product of the Chicago political machine, which is one of the dirtiest in the country. They picked him. They anointed him. They promoted him. Um, they knew uh, even then that he would shed any position that was politically inconvenient, as, of course, he did. 
I mean, he got up in that election in, in front of AIPAC and delivered, uh, you know, the Israeli Likud line or Kadima line. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, and they'll try and pitch you the thing with Hillary. They'll pitch the thing that she's a woman. Um, it's just, you know, it's, it's the face of, of superpower. Um, you know, it is the relentless focus on the personality of the candidate, which is fictitious because it's all created by the public relations machine. So, yeah, I mean, they, they understood that this was a, a wonderful way to neutralize uh, African-American opposition, Democratic opposition, liberal opposition, while they continued the policies that Bush had set in place. Now, you know, when I was in front of Wall Street, most of these, most of the demonstrators, or, you know, vast majority were young, and they, they're not buying the Democratic Party anymore at all. They're not buying the system. I mean, they're the hope. You know, and I, I have, I loved Occupy. I love hanging out there. I get my energy from it. It was kind of moving to be there Monday because it reminded me of Occupy um, and Zuccotti. And they're politically pretty sophisticated. And I mean, we did not know if we weren't going to all go to jail. Nobody knew. Nobody told us that we could walk those streets without a permit. And they got on those streets and went. And when the cops tried to hold them back to half the street, they, pushed through the cop lines, and sat down and blocked the whole street. That's what we need. And um, you have you know, some old kind of stalwarts. You know, I don't want to call us old, but let's say we're old. Uh, but they, so they'll be mixed in the crowd, but the crowd is primarily young and, and militant and, and politically sophisticated and courageous. And, uh, and I love them. I mean, you know, it's like all the people I hang out with are like 25, pierced, tattooed. There's a picture of, I got led of people's hearing on Goldman Sachs with Cornell West, and then we all marched on Goldman Sachs where he got arrested. There's this hilarious, I always kind of dress like this. Anyway, it's kind of silly to look hip because I'll just look stupid. Um, uh, but I also kind of do it because, um, you know, there's a certain constituency that I seek to reach. Um, especially having the imprintur of the New York Times and all that kind of stuff, um, which, as my friend um, Norman Finkelstein points out, because he was so outspoken and so courageous so early, he was never kind of approved by the establishment. And because I was, they, however much they hate me, I succeeded within the parameters of their structure. And they can't kind of take that away from me. Um, as hard as they try. So I kind of not, I kind of dress like this, you know, as a kind of reminder. But anyway, there's a picture we're all marching to Goldman Sachs, and everybody around me is like in mohawks and nose rings and everything. And I've got a, like a little jacket on, a little button down shirt. It's very funny. Anyway. Yeah. So. Do you fear for your life? Mm -mm. I was in places like Sarajevo and El Salvador for five years, so. You know the bar is kind of high. I mean, right? But see, I I think when you are a war correspondent for as long as I am, I mean, part of the DNA of a war correspondent is that you're pretty hard to spook. So, I don't at all. I mean, I don't think there's any. I think right now they don't care about me. They've marginalized me. My voice is pushed to the sidelines. They don't. I'm not perceived as any kind of a threat to them. Um, I think the people they're scared most of are the hackers, 
because these people can burrow into the system and ferret out their secrets. I can't do that. I'm like, I was, I had, I have communications with some of these people, and so they insist that we encrypt. I think it's ridiculous. I think if we encrypt, you know, and I'm like communicating with people from WikiLeaks or anything through encryption, it's just a, a giant alarm bell to make sure it's read in real time. But anyway, so uh, yeah, was, they sent down a bunch of hackers to set up my computer system, not all of whom have names like Subverso and stuff. Uh, so they're all sitting around and I go, oh, you know, I'm glad you guys are here because I got this new iPhone and I don't know how to send an email. And they're all, there's a long silence and one of them goes, Man, dude, you're joking, right? <laughs> Money and power. Um, and I think that, you know, if you look closely at Bill and Hillary Clinton, it's a kind of example of how that lust for power and money absolutely perverts you as a human being, destroys, you know, that it's a, like a drug. I mean, it's all you want, and you want more of it at any cost. I mean, you now have Bill and Hil Hillary Clinton scheming to get back in the White House. You may very well end up in, back in the White House. I mean, we may have, imagine, we may very, it's very possible that we are going to have an election that either sees Hillary Clinton versus Jeb Bush or Hillary Clinton versus Mitt Romney. I mean, who could imagine that anybody would resurrect Mitt Romney? Um, but, you know, that just shows how calcified the system is. No, I think they're kind of demented people. And, and it's for them, it's all about that lust for power and for wealth. Um, and Obama, you know, Obama, I think, is kind of checked out in a way. I think he's just waiting to walk out of the White House and get filthy rich. And he will. In essence, you have the craziest people uh, in control. Well, those who are supposedly educated uh, and they can speak publicly and, and hold much information in their head, but soul wise, they're completely yeah. corrupt. Well, yeah, the problem's not education. I mean, I listen to Obama say, you know, the, we have to be educated. The people who got us into this mess are the best educated people in the country. The problem's greed. And um, I covered, you know, I, was, I covered these people for a long time, like Dick Holbrook. I mean, I know the kind of, you know, psychological DNA of these people. It's kind of terrifying. I mean, they're very stunted human beings. Karl Popper writes about it in uh, The Open Society and Its Enemies, and he quite presciently says, the question is not how do you get good people to rule. That's the wrong question. Most people, Popper writes, who are attracted to power are at best mediocre or venal. The question is how do you make the power elite frightened enough of you to keep them under control? And there's that scene in Kissinger's memoirs, although none of you are allowed to buy the book, where uh, it's like 1971 or something. And, and so there's a huge anti-war demonstration. And Nixon has taken empty city buses end to end to ring the White House. And he's standing at the window, wringing his hands, going, Henry, Henry, they're going to break through the barricades and get us. And that's where you want people in power to be. And that's why in France, you know, as, as Sarkozy is a Cretan. And yet, because of radical French labor unions, students 
I mean, can you imagine getting up in France and telling French students that they'd pay $50,000 a year to go to, they'd shut the damn country down. What are we doing? We're like, how fast can we get into debt peonage? I, I, I am stunned at what students put up with. And every college I go to, I said, find 10 students that have $100,000 in debt, which is a million dollars, and chain yourself to the fucking president's door. This is obscene what they're doing to you. It's obscene. And they're doing it on purpose. And you know all the way they've rigged it, that your interest rates are higher than bank loans, that if you declare bankruptcy, you can't get out of it. I mean, it's unbelievable. And there are no jobs. And yet you still don't reach a critical mass to do the mass. I know. I, I would think just on student loans alone, I mean, if you can't mobilize for anything else, I just don't get it. I just don't get it. I, it kind of scares me, you know? And I think a lot of it is that you buy the Kool-Aid. And these institutions are not going to tell you the truth. Do you uh, teach your fellow journalists to be as much of an advocate for this kind of truth as you do the public? Because you all are the ones who can, you know, enable. No, I think, well, I don't work for the New York Times anymore, so I, yeah, I don't have any like community of, I mean, my community tends to be activists, people, the people, you know, I speak with like Chomsky or Finkelstein or Cornell West. Well, no, but no, I, pre I don't preach to the choir. I mean, I preach, but I'm saying in terms of my community, the, my personal community. Um, well. You don't see it as a duty to advocate? Well, no, I do, but I, I don't know how much impact I have. I mean, I don't really know. I mean, I'll tell you something. You don't know who's reading your stuff, and you don't know what impact it has. Um, but after the NDAA, the public editor of the New York Times called me and quoted me in a column. She'd read my stuff on the NDAA, so it had filtered you know, there. But you can't, you know, you put it out there you know, in the age of the internet. You don't know. I mean, it's not, not, like, writing, it's not like writing for the New York Times, where you, there's immediate reverberation. Um, you write it, and it's kind of amorphous. You don't know who reads it, if anyone reads it. You don't know what impact. I mean, even anecdotally, you may get something. Um, you know, I keep hammering away. Because they say true resistance is when you actually go to the police force or to the army and say, I want to bring you into my Well, life. I mean, if you just sit here in this room and say, you know, let's Sure, but the, I mean, I can just anecdotally you know, I spoke, and I'm not even going to name the city, recently, and when I was finished, two uh, off-duty cops came up and said they read all my columns. I spoke in New York once, and I had fervently tried to damp down any uh, antagonism on the part of occupiers towards police. I said, don't insult them, don't. And at one point, there was this little obscure YouTube clip video somebody filmed, and I'm speaking in Zuccotti, and I'm saying, look, that most of the violence was carried out by the white shirts, the guys in the, uh, the officers who wore white short sleeve shirts, make $110,000 a year, including the initial pepper spraying of those women. Those were all white shirts. And the whole mood of the blue uniform police would change the moment the white shirts showed up. And so there's this little YouTube clip where I'm going, which I shouldn't have done, where I said something like, look, you know, you got to feel for these blue uniform police because we only have to deal with these white-shirted assholes a couple hours a day. They got to deal with them all day long, every week. 
And I shouldn't have done it because I gave a talk. And when I finished, a guy comes up and he says, I'm a white-shirted asshole. And I read your books. And I mean, I've read Martin Luther King. I should not have done it. So I don't pretend that it's any kind of, I mean, not only a majority, it's a tiny minority. But it's important. So in that sense, those are the people you want to reach. I gave a teach-in at Zuccotti Park. And there were like three cops that stood around and listened. And when the teaching was over, the cops asked me if I'd send them a copy of my book, which I did. But it's, you know, it's that old thing, you change the world one person at a time. You don't know. I mean, that's why I think it's so important to treat the opposition with respect. Because you don't know what's going on inside of their heart. And because every successful revolution at its core is nonviolent. You do not carry out, and you know, all the great theorists of revolution from Crane Brinton on down have spelled it out. What is it that turns? And I've seen it in my own life in Eastern Europe and everywhere else. It's when the security forces no longer protect a discredited elite. So when Eric Honecker sends paratroopers down to Leipzig to fire on demonstrators, and they refuse, Honecker, who'd been in power for 19 years, runs you know, the most, one of the most repressive states at the time in the history of the world, the Stasi state, he lasts another week in power. When they send the Cossacks in to crush the Petrograd bread riots and they fraternize with the crowd, they, they frantically reach out to the czar who's on the front, put him in a railway carriage. He doesn't even make it back to Petrograd. He has to resign, I don't know, he has to abdicate. I don't know. That's how revolutions work. I mean, violence are, is part of revolution. But you know, you know who's actually, and I'm not a fan of Lenin, but he's kind of brilliant. I mean, you got to read him. He does understand the dynamics of revolution. And Lenin was a huge opponent of terror. He used terror in power, but not to confront power. And this is what his battle with the anarchists. Uh, that, that, that you have to, I mean, it was the sailors, uh, you know, and then, of course, Lenin forms the Red Guard. But it was, you know, you need those to bring those forces over to your side. This was true in Ceausescu. I covered the Velvet Revolution. As soon as the Prague police won't fire on the crowd, they were finished. So um, I, you're exactly right. Um, but for somebody in my position, I guess the question is not that you're preaching to the choirs, that you don't know who you're preaching to. And so you must always speak with respect, even to those people who are nominally your enemy, because you actually don't know what's going on inside of them. And you know, that's, that's Hobble's 1978 essay, The Power of the Powerless. And what's fascinating about the revolution, I mean, Hobble starts Charter 77 in 1977. The Velvet Revolution happens in 89. That's a long time. It's 12 years. Hobble is a non-person. None of his plays are performed. His essays aren't published. He's in and out of jail. He was not, I was spent every night with him in Prague in the Magic Lantern Theater. They, he and Dinsbeer and Klaus and everyone talked to the press, foreign press. Havel was not a good speaker. He was not charismatic. But he had the moral authority. I mean, there was no question in Prague who you were going to turn to. Um, and because he embodied all of those qualities. Uh, and I, and I, you know, I often, often think about Havel in terms of how to deal with this state.
especially in the war that's going along. We kind of see it right now. Right. Syria and stuff. Right. Because I was never a careerist. And war correspondents are a very peculiar group. Um, psychologically damaged, especially if you do it as long as I did. But they tend not to be prima donnas. You do not volunteer to go into places where your chances of getting killed are really high if you think you're worth a lot. I mean, I love war correspondents. You know, their personal lives are a wreck and they drink too much and, you know. I wouldn't want them near my daughter. Um, but they're brave, and they're funny, and the good ones care. And the good ones will make tremendous sacrifices, uh, I mean really dangerous sacrifices, to tell the story of the people they care about. So what happens with professional war correspondents such as myself is that when you come back into a newsroom, you don't fit in. Because the very qualities the institution sought, which is a complete defiance of authority. I mean, that's what they paid me to do. I mean, the Serbs tell me they're going to kill me, and I go back to Kosovo anyway. I mean, I covered the war in El Salvador for five years. At a certain point, I just figured I'm going to die here. War correspondents never fit back into the institution. There's just a long history of it. Because an institution like the New York Times, which is corporate, and, it, and I don't want to take away, there's tremendous talent there. But they're completely deferential to authority and fear-ridden um, because they're careerists. And, and in the inception of the Gulf War, um, to speak out against that war was a career killer. And they knew it. And a lot of these people probably didn't like Bush or support the war. But they weren't going to say anything because what is paramount for them is their career. And when you spend 10 years just trying to get into the New York Times, you're already conditioned. You've invested so much. And I think that so many of those people, and in this sense, it's like Harvard, they needed that imprint tour of the New They needed to walk out the door and identify themselves as being with the New York Times. And, and, and in the same way that Harv people at Harvard need to identify themselves as being from Harvard. And in fact, what you end up creating is a really a, a quite a large pool of mediocrity. Um, people who, um, they're insecure. Uh, and even if they are talented, they just won't fight the institution in any way. Um, and they're terrified of the institution because the institution can take that away from them. So I think it was careerism. In terms of perks, well, I mean, look at all of us who are right about the war. Where are we? And all the idiots who are wrong about the war, where are they? I mean, they're still you know, pulling down obscene salaries on cable news shows or Tom Friedman. I mean, I mean, Tom Friedman's an idiot. I mean, a globe, what has he been right on? I mean, he's in advertising. But he reflects back to the power elite what they want to hear. And, and he justifies the dominant narrative. And so they love him because it's just a big echo chamber. They, they, he tells them tells them what they want to believe. And you can make a really good living like that. But, you know, it's just not worth it because it's, 
kind of you have to sell your soul to do it. So it's all about career. They don't really believe that necessarily. It's just they know. Um, I, it's a mix. I mean, some of them believe it. I think Tom, I don't know what Tom believes. I uh, you know I know him, but I don't know what he believes. But um, some of them it's just cynical. I mean, so the smart ones it's about their career. Some of them are just stupid. I mean, Judy Miller believed it. I know because I was on the investigative team. She really believed it. She believed that there were weapons of mass. She believed it. Of course, you know, the thing is they took down Judy. The whole damn New York Times believed it. They just used, I, don't, I hate the idea of her as a scapegoat, but it was an institutional flaw. So, look, anytime you get within an institution which you have fought and sacrificed and struggled to get into, and which gives you a sense of meaning, then that institution has power over you. And your greatest fear is being pushed out of that institution because it's an assault against your identity and your status. You know, it just wasn't a game I ever wanted to play. I mean, I went as a freelance journalist to El Salvador. I wanted to cover the war. When I was there, the Washington Post offered me a job. But they said, you have to go back and like, you know, go to Maryland or the Metro desk. And I said, I'm not going to Maryland. Now, that was a bad career move. I mean, a good careerist would have jumped on it and then climbed their way up within the post. But I wanted to be in El Salvador. I didn't, you know, my career in that sense wasn't the point. The point was the war and, and giving voice to the victims of the war. And it's why I always had an unencumbered time within the institution of the Times of reporting what I wanted to report on because nobody else wanted to do it. Nobody wanted to go live in Gaza. When I went to Sarajevo, the executive editor, Joe Lelyville, said, well, I guess the line starts and ends with you. Nobody wanted to go. go. I mean, 45 reporters have been killed by the time I went in. But you know, I was no competition for the work I wanted to do. I didn't want to go to Washington. I said, that's my one non-negotiable demand. I would never come to Washington. I don't want to have lunch with these guys. I don't even want to know them. So the irony is that papers like the Times need reporters like that. But in terms of functioning within the institution or ever rising within the institution, that's an impossibility. Because, because my loyalty wasn't to the institution. And if you rise within any institution, your loyalty cannot be to people. It has to be to the institution. And that's why it takes time. And by the time you get up there, you've already been vetted. And it's clear that you will sacrifice anyone, including people within the institution, for the well-being of the institution. That's how institutions work. And this one's no exception. Discourse of the emancipatory discourse. And so 
and, and we see this on campus at AU um, all the time uh, at a lot of events here about development and corporate social responsibility and private public partnerships. Um, one thing I'd ask you to comment on, though, Chris, and thank you very much for your work. I've, I've read some of your stuff. I've seen your 15 minutes to start a revolution video. Everybody should Google it. Um, but um, we seem to have a certain paradox in the American character, and it's most manifest on Fox News, this notion of we love freedom and independence and we hate people pushing us around. Um, but for some reason, when it comes to government authoritarian power, we need to keep our mouth shut. And, and, and it seems like, especially on Fox News, it's like even though they love the founding fathers, they forget that they that the founding fathers were essentially dissenters and revolutionaries against Britain. And so that sort of spirit of dissent seems to get lost in the meaning of freedom. It's like we all want to be free, yet we all have to conform to the state's point of view. And if we don't, then we're traitors. Do you see this as a, a certain character paradox in the American culture? I don't see it as a paradox because I don't share your view of the founding fathers. I knew you wouldn't. Um, well, if you were black, you definitely wouldn't. Um, the Founding Fathers, and you have to juxtapose the Founding Fathers against Thomas Paine, who was the only real radical we had. And the only reason Paine had any kind of a voice in the revolution is because the pro-British elite in Pennsylvania, uh, none of them ever turned to support the revolution. It was the only state that... And so Payne, you know, there was a very uneasy alliance with even Jefferson, Madison, all these figures, and Payne because Payne was all they had. Payne because he was a real revolutionary, you know, writing common sense and um, uh, the age of reason and all this other stuff, um, he fired up the masses. Payne was also a fierce abolitionist. And it's indicative what happened once the revolution was over. That native, largely slaveholding white male aristocracy immediately created mechanisms to thwart direct democracy, disenfranchised everybody you know, who wasn't part of their class. Not only women, African Americans, Native Americans, but also white males without property. And they created the Electoral College. It's how you get Al Gore getting 500,000 more votes than Bush, and yet Bush is president. Had nothing to do with Ralph Nader. I mean, Bush was appointed president by fiat by the Supreme Court. I mean, the whole, I mean, you know, that, but the, Nader became the kind of lightning rod the Democrats use because Nader terrified the Democrats. And, um, and so, as Zinn understands in the people's history of the United States, all of our struggles have been radical movements seeking open up, seeking to open democratic space that the founding fathers denied to us. And that was the Liberty Party that fought slavery, the suffragists, the labor movement, and labor wars in this country were far more violent than in any other industrialized nation. Hundreds of American workers were murdered. Thousands were wounded. Tens of thousands were pushed out of their jobs. Um, so the spirit of actual dissent was within these radical populist movements the Wobblies, the old CIO, the Communist Party, Eugene V. Debs. And what happened, and I spent a lot of time in the death of the liberal class talking about it, is that starting with World War I, 
they were destroyed completely. We have no populist or radical movements left, unlike Europe, where you have residues of communist labor unions. And we don't even have the language to express what's happening to us, much less the organizational force with which to respond. And, and the problem was that we lost our radical movements. And that's why there is no spirit of rebellion there was within American history. Debs, Joe Hill, Emma Goldman, Alexander Berkman, Jane Addams, Randolph Bourne, we had them. But by the, you know, the death knell was fine. I mean, the assault, you know, and, and under the Espionage Act, they used the Espionage and Sedition Act. They shut down the publications after the McKinley assassination. They wiped out a huge anarchist movement in this country. Um, we just got eviscerated. And we don't have that, you know, that organized radicalism, which is absolutely fundamental to an open society because it pushes the liberal class which is not designed as the political left, but as a kind of safety valve. When Roosevelt finishes the New Deal, he says his greatest achievement was that he saved capitalism, and he's right. Um, but it would have never happened without that pressure against a liberal center. Now the pressure's gone, we don't have it. Uh, and that's the problem. So the spirit of revolution, rebellion, all of it was there. But in the name of anti-communism, and now in the name of you know, anti-terrorism, uh, anybody with a conscience is crushed, and 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 we're we're you know deeply impoverished in many ways because of it. Oh, no. Right. Right. Because I differentiate between institutional religion and faith. And I hate institutional religion. Um, and you're right. Institutional religion has been used, as many people have pointed out, as a very sophisticated form of control and repression. But I find faith and something, you know, or religious thought as something that is worth holding on to. Because when you are called, and you can do this in secular language, Havel certainly did, but when you are called to stand up against what Kant would call radical evil, if you're rational, like standing up to the corporate state, there's almost no chance of success. If you're rational. Because human, human history has borne it out. I mean, most, you know, you know, we remember those few rebels who succeeded, but most rebels don't. And, and I think that asking whether you're going to succeed or not is the wrong question. I think you have to see resistance or rebellion, and Camus expressed this, as a kind of moral imperative, as a way of being. And the way that, I mean, I find, I love Camus a lot, 
Um, but I find this, I think in the end you have to make, a, in order to do it and do it for a lifetime, you have to make a leap into the non-rational. And that's not irrational. Um, but a belief that the good draws to it the good. And there's nothing empirically to prove that. In fact, it may be the opposite. But that belief that when you carry something out, the good, at least insofar as you can determine it, it resonates and it draws other people towards the good. That's right. So we don't have to go above ourselves in order to feel that we can have a better future. We can actually go amongst ourselves. Right, but we have to get in touch with the, those non-rational forces of beauty, truth, grief, the, the search for meaning, the struggle with our own mortality. Artists do it. I mean, you, don't, you, can, you can get to that route many ways. But I think the great religion, I mean, art and religion initially in all religions were intertwined. I mean, the Psalms were all poems meant to be sung. And uh, so I, I don't think you, you need the root of a religious tradition to get there at all. Um, I mean, as H. Richard Niebuhr said, religion is a good thing for good people and a bad thing for bad people. But this is the tradition I come out of. And, um, and, you know, I come out of a tradition where uh, my father was a minister, and I went to seminary, but my father was a pariah within the institution. As a matter of fact, the church threw him out. Um, he was involved in the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, and then in the 1970s, as a Presbyterian minister, he was an outspoken supporter of the gay rights movement. His brother, my uncle, was gay. So my father had a particular sensitivity to the pain of being a gay man in America in the 50s and 60s. And when the church told him to stop, my father's response was to open his church on Easter to the GBLT community of the city of Syracuse. And it was a giant fuck you to the institutional church. And he went and got me, he was a great preacher. I was at Colgate, which was an hour away. And he said, this is probably the last time you'll ever hear me preach. And he got up in front of these men and women, many of whom were in tears before it began, given the way the wider society and the church treated them. And he said, um, uh, marriage is a sacrament. It's not a reward for being a heterosexual. And any church that refuses to honor the sacrament of marriage does not deserve to call itself Christian. And they threw him out. Now, that for me is an embodiment of a life of faith and an authentically religious life in defying the religious institution to hold fast to value and human dignity. And um, if I had, I could have had a father who did exactly the same thing and never used religious language. But because for him, religion was real and faith was real and that his Christianity told him that we must always stand with the oppressed wherever they are. Um, you know, in the parlance of Christian theology, it's called bearing the cross. And, you know, there's a beautiful kind of evocation of what this means in the great biography of Martin Luther King by Garrow. King knew at the end he would be killed. Not only that, but at the end, everyone turned on him. With a black power movement, he was booed and hissed and, and Watts. You know, everybody was walking away. Stokely Carmichael from the movement 
he's being criticized, and there's this scene two months before he's killed where he's being attacked for being a moderate and bending to white liberals, and King just stands up and he says, I take nonviolence to be my lawfully wedded wife. And it's that moral capacity which does not need to be expressed through religion. Havel was not, in, I mean, he was an atheist as far as I know. And there are many ways to express it. I come out of the Muslim world. I have seen Muslims stand up and fight the oppressor on behalf of the oppressed. It, you know, there's lots of languages, religions, but this is where I come from. And it's authentic. And in a way, it's a kind, it's because of my dad. My dad taught, he didn't teach me what the moral, he showed me. So when I'm called into the New York Times and they're about to tell me to shut up, to stop speaking about the war, I realize, because of my father, that I can, you know, muzzle myself for my career. But on a very visceral level, to do that would be to betray my dad. And I couldn't do it. what you're doing is disempowering yourself and your father by giving the credit of your goodness and his goodness to religion. And this is the most um, You know what? Insidious. Talk to me. Grab me afterwards. We'll have the religion debate. They probably don't want it. I mean, it, it, yeah, we'll do it later. Do it afterwards. You can walk out. I just think it's an instrumental fact for human beings to be free of oppression. I mean, I'll, I'll just, I'll talk to you afterwards, but I'll just say one last thing. I think Tillich was right, that, there, that the, the religious vocabulary has captured certain human concepts, sin, forgiveness, atonement, which I've not seen captured as astutely outside of the religious tradition. But let's not turn this over to a discussion of religion. I'll be happy to talk to you afterwards. Yeah. So I want to bring it back to the mass civil, mass civil disobedience movement as being necessary if we're going to see some, some changes. Um, and I think because the United States is, is a pretty big geographic, physical geographic country, it's hard for people to congregate in one area, especially for uh, you know days and days or even weeks or for some extended period. Uh, not to mention, you know, with wages and other things, you know, people can't. If people that are working can't risk their jobs to come and, and do these things. So I guess I was wondering, can, can we have massive civil, civil disobedience dislocated? Is, is there a way? And one of the things I ask you this is because I I'm more of a theory, I guess. But I was thinking how Occupy Wall Street. When it did, when we had all these different ones in Oakland, Boston, you know, we had one at University of Rhode Island when I was there, obviously New York, <coughs> etc. It seemed like it was easy for the media to trivialize it by saying, "Oh, there's only this many here," but if you added up the entire movement at any given time, it would it would have been much more massive. And so I guess the the question I guess is, can we have many parts of a massive civil disobedience and have the same effect? And and you know. We, talked about this foreign policy co-op. Um, can actions be taken on college campuses, you know, where young people, I mean, of course, you guys have classes and other things, but maybe have a little bit more freedom to uh, participate in civil disobedience? If you got all well, I think we underestimate how terrified the power <coughs> was of Occupy. They were really frightened. And that's why there was a coordinated federal effort to shut them down, and that's why there has been a coordinated federal effort to target all of the activists within Occupy and slap them with felony charges so that they can't do more activism. Um, I think the elite was really rattled. 
And I think they were rattled because they, we spoke a truth that those within the bowels of power knew to be true, of their corruption, how the system's rigged. I mean, there cannot be two human beings more cynical, and I even include Obama, than the Clintons. You know, that, and you know, I had a kind of window into it because I went to a boarding school as I'm a scholarship student when I was 10. So I spent all those years with all the George W. Bushes of the world. And I went to their homes. And I saw, you know, and their parents were often prominent public figures, including like the governor of Pennsylvania. And I saw how they acted, you know, within the privacy of their own homes, the utter disdain they had, and the way their public face was. Um, so, I mean, you ask about decent. I, I think, in fact, the Occupy movement, they were very frightened of it. And they invested tremendous resources to tear it apart in terms of provocateurs. This is why I battled the Black Bloc. I don't know if you, how, whether you follow this minutia, but I wrote this story called Calling Them the Cancer of Occupy, which, because I think half of them were cops. And, you know, what they wanted were like pictures of people breaking windows and because they wanted to frighten away the mainstream. I mean, what must, what terrified the power elite was on the weekends, you had all these couples from New Jersey coming in with their strollers, walking up and down Zuccotti. And they, you know, if they can reduce the group to an easily controllable fringe, they can destroy it. Um, so, you know, you don't, I mean, you know, again, you can look at theorists like Brenton and others you actually don't need more than probably about 3% of the population to bring down the government, if they'll get out in the street. Um, and you've got to begin slowly. I mean, you've got to begin on this university. You've got to begin around issues that people can get their heads around. I mean, minimum wage is good. On universities, it's got to be student loans. Or the firing of faculty members who, who uh, you know, challenge the dominant. I mean, there's no, almost no room now in academia to challenge the dominant narrative. If you do it, you almost have to do it secretly. It's kind of really pathetic. And I speak as someone who taught at Princeton. I mean, it's just awful. I mean, there's, we talk, talk about, and, and I think a lot of people conform for careerism. And it's why so much of academia is spends the time investigating utterly arcane and useless topics. Um, because it's safe. Uh, and they contribute nothing to the common good. So, I mean, look at the economics department of almost any university. I mean, it's no longer actually discussing. We don't live in a system of laissez-faire capitalism. We live in a system of corporate socialism. We just gave the banks $3 trillion. I mean, it's nuts. $17 trillion. I can't remember how much it is. $3 trillion for the wars, I guess. The, yeah, but I mean, it's just it's a mythical kind of version. I just, so, uh, I think that when a system is that calcified and that corrupt, and people gather together to speak a truth about it, I think it really scares them. I think Bloomberg and all his friends were really scared. And you, you know what? I don't even think it, because I got cousins on Wall Street. I know it. And they were getting tweets during the entire Occupy movement in real time of everything the Occupy movement did, like at the banks. They're walking down Fifth and you know, whatever. They knew in real time, which means they had people in. But that just shows you the level of fear. And to the extent, I mean, the, 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 the 
massive police presence that New York deployed for this nonviolent. It's insane. So I don't think it's actually that hard. I think you know you don't actually need huge numbers. I mean, three percent of the population is what's that? How many people? Quick, three. How many people we have in this country? Three hundred twenty million. I mean, that'll take them down, if you're willing to go out there. Yeah. I mean, you know, Russia was brought down. Russia's a bigger country. The Russian Empire was bigger than we were. You, you choke the nerve points. Again, you go back to Lenin. But you, ours you, isn't concentrated just in this country. It's a multinational that? force that it is. controls us. Yes, it is. It's, it is supranational. You're exactly right. And, um, but we can discredit the power systems here. We can, I think the brilliance of the Occupy movement is that they realized that power was concentrated in Wall Street, not Washington. That's why we went to shut down Wall Street. And you know, it was totally benign, and you know, it was kind of almost like having a street fair out on the street, but I can guarantee you all those assholes in their suits looking out the window were pissing in their pants, which is just what we wanted to do. Um, we had Marjorie come here yesterday just as a quick aside, and she suggested 1% was the number of people we would need. Um, yeah. Abolition movement, yeah. civil rights, which She's is right. about 1%. Of I'm throwing three, but one, it may even be one. Yeah. yeah, it's not much. We know from the study of revolutions that you actually don't need very much. If you can mobilize 1%, I, that's right. And I wanted to ask you, um, Empire Illusion was a great book of yours, and I think that's to me, that's part of the biggest problem that I have in trying to do activism and trying to write um, is cutting through the distractions that people have and sort of this, um, you confront them with a problem and it's so easy for them to shut it down because it's overwhelming for them and because they can just watch TV, go on the internet. Um, so are you optimistic at being able to kind of cut through that, that distracted mechanism that I'm not terribly optimistic. <laughs> I mean, you can't read climate change reports and be optimistic about the fate of the human species. But about people paying attention and actually starting to make movement and act? Well, only because Marjorie's right, we only need such a small percentage. I think we can get it. I think the masses, like the masses in any society, will sit and watch their version of Punch and Judy. Now, you know, when they get hungry, when they're forced, when they're forced from their homes, when existentially they confront the breakdown. But the problem is that if they don't understand systems of power, then when they are personally affected, they tend to react. Because, you know, essentially remaining in that state of illusion is, is a kind of way of never growing up. It's a perpetual kind of infantilism. When they react, they react like children. So they want moral renewal and force and you know strong people and protection and that's fascism uh, and you will get a huge undercurrent of this country which will if things break down demand demand fascism they will they're you know they're they will they will call for it and that's kind of what we're up against and we live in a very violent culture which has a long tradition of vigilante violence, tolerated by the state, going all the way back to the Klan and slave patrols. So, and Hofstetter's written about this, is a 
in his book on violence. Read the, just if, if you don't have to read the whole book, just read the, the introduction. Kind of nails it. So I'm not optimistic, but you know, I come from a very dark vision of the world. I mean, you know, most of my friends are dead and covered rape camps. And, you know, I watch people get shot and killed in front of me. I mean, I, had a, I have a kind of dark vision of human nature. Um, do you think uh, Gene Sharp's books are helpful? Yeah, he's kind of brilliant. Um, yeah, he's kind of, he's very good. I think there. Gene Sharp is really good. Yeah. Well, yeah. why are we really bombing Syria? What, what's the I mean, the really knee-jerk answer is uh, the arms industry is making a fortune. Every cruise missile costs a million dollars. You know, they don't, you know, I don't think anybody in the, who's rational can think that violence has worked particularly well after 13 years in the Middle East. Um, but, you know, a lot of people are making a lot of money. And, you know, stock prices in these companies have quadrupled since 9-11. And, I mean, we've lost the war in Afghanistan. Iraq is eviscerated as a unified country, you know, and what they just found. What was the name of the new the new existential terrorist group they just discovered? It's kind of ridiculous. It's almost farcical. I mean, it's like, yeah. of course, like, yeah. right, it's like Goldstein's Minute of Hate. I mean, it just never ends. And, you know, after we bomb the fuck out of them, we'll find somebody. I mean, it's kind of nuts. But there's, you know, wars of business. So then the common denominator denominator beneath that would just be ultimate greed. Is that well, greed and this neoliberal ideology that, you know, the only language the rest of the world understands, especially the barbarians in the Middle East, is violence. That's kind of the Israeli mantra. Mm -hmm. well, that's exactly what the president said. Yeah, well... They won't respond to anything but force. Yeah, okay, well, I mean, that's the I mean, we've decapitated a lot more people with our drones than ISIS ever did. I saw, I saw, uh, I didn't hear the actual voice, but I saw on the TVs at the gym, uh, John Kerry, I guess, was being interviewed on CNN, and he said, you know, Iran needs to prove that their nuclear program is peaceful as we're bombing six or seven different countries. It just, I, it amazes me that our politicians can say things that are so absurd and so hypocritical and they can do it with a straight face, and, and most of the population, it would seem, just digest it. Well, because all were fed are empty cliches. I mean, the idea, the only, there's only one program on the airwaves. Let, let's, you know, on the mainstream, obviously Amy Goodman does, but the only mainstream program that deals seriously with power is Moyers. It's the only one. And he's leaving in December, and he's cut back to a half hour. That's it. We have no action, you know, we don't, yeah, it's, um, you know, it gets back to empire evolution. It's kind of scary. I mean, we're just, we invest our emotional and our intellectual life in the absurd. In that sense, it becomes like the end of Rome and Cicero in vain about the arena. That, you know, everybody's going to the arena and watching 4,000 slaves kill themselves while the Roman Republic is being eviscerated. And what happened to Cicero? You know, he's beheaded and his hands are cut off and they bring his severed head and his right hand to the forum say he'll never speak a right again and 40,000 people cheer. That's kind of where we are. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.